This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Dr. Natasha Balendra, Chairperson of the National Child Protection Authority, Sri Lanka. Thank you, Katya, and thanks, uh, Rui and Elizabeth, for organizing this wonderful event. And uh, thank you uh, very much to Professor Goodwin Gill for his immense, immense patience with me over, I'll just say, over 10 years of supervising my DPhil uh, thesis. I think uh, probably the longest standing student you have ever had. Um, I finished. Uh, last year, well, like defended last year, um, and the thesis uh, focused on the interaction between international human rights law and international humanitarian law, and it looked at the views of various uh, international uh, body, international and regional bodies, courts, uh, as well as state practices reflected in submissions to those bodies. Uh, today I'm actually going to focus on the views of the, not the Inter-American system, but the ICRC, the International uh, the Committee of the Red Cross, uh, on that topic, on the topic of the interaction between uh, human rights law and humanitarian law in armed conflict. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, um, in 1996, uh, the International Court of Justice uh, gave an advisory opinion in the nuclear weapons case in which it said that human rights law is applicable in armed conflict, but that its provisions had to be interpreted, in that case, the right to life had to be interpreted by reference to the provisions of IHL, International Humanitarian Law. And since then, international courts and bodies and commentators around the world have relied on that statement uh, and kept on, kept saying IHL is like specialis uh, in uh, like specialis meaning the more specific uh, law in um, armed conflict and therefore takes precedence over human rights law and that is the way they've explained the relationship between HRL and IHL by reference to like specialis and this has become a very, very uh, uh, criticized view because many commentators uh, feel that it uh, really complicates the issue, it doesn't bring clarity, clarity to the issue. And <coughs> there was a recent case, the European Court of Human Rights in 2014, uh, Hassan versus the uh, United Kingdom, in which the European Court um, this involved the right to liberty of a young Iraqi male during the um, hostility stage of the Iraqi conflict. And the European Court confronted the issue of extraterritoriality, the right to liberty and security, and the interaction between human rights law and, inter uh, and humanitarian law. And they decided that human rights law and humanitarian law, because um, the, the, had to be interpreted together, they had to be applied 
concomitantly. And um, therefore, in pract practically what they said was that although uh, Article 5 of the Convention applied, uh, it had to be interpreted so that uh, the Geneva Convention grounds for detention could also be accommodated. That was one. But also, two, that the rationale behind the procedural protections um, in the European Convention would determine how the IHL uh, uh, procedural protections for detention would be interpreted. So they basically they were blending, kind of blending IHL and HRL. And um, this there was there's been a lot of uh, commentary on this case, both negative and positive. But on the positive side, uh, I think most people say two things which are positive. One is that the European Court finally confronted the relationship between HRL and IHL. And two, that they didn't rely on this IHL as lex specialis uh, concept to explain that relationship. Uh, even though the United Kingdom relied, relied quite heavily on that concept in their submissions. What I want to do today is look at the views of the International Committee on of the Red Cross um, for three reasons. One is because the ICRC's views are not often discussed uh, when we talk about the relationship between HR and IHL. And two, because the ICRC, unlike the European Court or the Human Rights Committee or the Inter-American um, Inter Human Rights uh, System, is, is a body that uh, focuses on, has expertise on, is biased towards IHL and not HRL. So I think it's important that we look at that body because that way we can avoid accusations that we're looking at, you know, uh, 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 wishy-washy uh, human rights law kind of bodies only, <laughs> that they are not bleeding heart human rights people, they are also looking at the hard-nosed IHL uh, IHL stuff. Um, and three, uh, because ICRC has actually looked at, uh, has explained what it means by uh, IHL is the uh, Lex Specialis in Armed Conflict. They have explained it in detail, unlike the other bodies. They have tried to apply it in a very nuanced and principled way. But I will, uh, but what I want to discuss today is even though they've done that, they too have been unable to stick to a rigid framework of IHL as Lex Specialis and have had in certain circumstances to blend IHL with human rights law um, in certain circumstances. So let me um, quickly move on to the ICRC. Uh, as many of you know, the ICRC, ICRC's views are not binding on states, but they are treated as uh, especially authoritative uh, on the issue of uh, the rules applicable to armed conflict. Uh, for many, many years, they didn't actually uh, refer to human rights law in their interpretations. But more recently, they have started in their statements and interpretations, uh, started referring to human rights law. They unambiguously accept that human right, rights law continues to apply in um, armed conflict. Uh, their general position is that it's complementary, but they explicitly um, 
acknowledge that there, that there are very real differences uh, between the two uh, systems of law, uh, both generally and in uh, specific cases like torture, detentions, the use of force, and extraterritorial targeted, targeted killings. And when speaking generally about the relationship between uh, HRL and IHL, they say that IHL is lex specialis. They say that um, in international armed conflicts, because IHL has detailed rules, that in general there is no real reason to look at HRL or no reason to refer to HRL. Um, so it's trying to uh, apply a pretty rigid framework where it's saying that when there are rules, when there are explicit rules of IHL, we don't need to look at HRL. We look at HRL only when IHL is silent. But what it has kind of unwittingly succeeded in doing by actually uh, explicitly explaining their position uh, on uh, IHL as specialist is to show that it cannot uh, apply this principle in a uh, context-specific way and has had to actually move into a more nuanced position. Uh, especially with respect to, respect to targeted killings and peaceful occupations. Uh, so their general positions on, position on the uh, use of force against combatants is that international humanitarian law takes precedence and HRL is not, human rights law is not relevant. They have on many occasions uh, talked about the differences between <coughs> IHL and HRL in this regard. Very basically, the primary difference is that under human rights law, um, the killing of combatants is prohibited unless it, except as a last resort. Whereas under IHL, it is permitted because of the assumed military advantage gained from killing uh, combatants. Um, so even in publications that refer to, and this is called the uh, principle of distinction, where combatants can be uh, killed as opposed to uh, civilians. So even in publications uh, where the ICRC has referred extensively to human rights law when interpreting other, other uh, norms and rules, they haven't uh, referred to HRL when they uh, interpret the principle of distinction. Um, but in, more recently, in their uh, uh, interpreted guidelines on the notion of direct participation in hostilities under IHL, it has said this. It has said that the kind and degree of force used must not exceed what is actually necessary to accomplish a legitimate military purpose in the prevailing circumstances. And then it goes on to say, it goes on to say the practical importance of the restraining function will increase with the ability of a party to the conflict to control the circumstances and area in which its military operations are conducted and may become decisive when armed forces operate against selected individuals in situations comparable to peacetime policing. Uh, they claim to derive the principle from an interplay between modern notions and principles of military necessity and humanity, but I don't think that is an accepted view because uh, military necessity and humanity are already encapsulated in the ru rules of IHL and additional notions uh, are usually not, uh, not 
uh, accepted as interpretive devices. Um, and this is confirmed by uh, ICRC advisors working on the subject, writing in their private capacity, but I think it gives us uh, kind of an insight into the thinking of the ICRC, where they explain that uh, in combat situations, in hostility situations, yes, IHL is, uh, is the Lex Specialis, but when, uh, when it is, um, when it's more, uh, when there is more control over a situation or territory, that HRL-like precautions become more relevant. So I think even the ICRC is now beginning to move towards a position where the more control a state has over a situation or a circumstance or a territory, it's willing to blend in more human rights law despite its statements that in international armed conflicts at least, and the, the, with the use of lethal force at least, it is not looking at human rights law at all. And this is consistent with what other human rights law bodies have done, like uh, the Human Rights Committee, like the various special rapporteurs on torture and extrajudicial, uh, extrajudicial, uh, um, uh, extrajudicial assassinations. Um, but what is important here is that the ICRC is saying it. The ICRC, which is focusing on um, IHL, which has a expertise on IHL, which arguably has a structural bias towards IHL, is also beginning to blend HRL and IHL together, um, at least in cases where, we are moving, where, where, where the situation is, moves away from a traditional uh, battlefield situation. And as, we, as I said at the beginning, in Hassan, the European Court uh, blended the two systems of law even in in a hostility, hostility situation. Um, and this is actually a, a, a positive move, I think, and, but it raises questions as to whether we have to start thinking of what kind of framework uh, governs the blending of these two systems of law. Do we just leave it to a case-by-case -case analysis? Uh, do we, I mean, in one, one sense, it has to be a very fact-specific, issue-specific determination. But on the other hand, uh, individuals, soldiers, people making decisions at the state level have to have some clarity and predictability. So uh, how do we get there? Who has to do that? And what I, what I would suggest is that the ICRC actually play a pretty important role in that uh, because of its expertise in IHL, which a lot of other bodies don't have, and also because it was one of the first bodies to explicitly um, recognize the real, very real differences between human rights law and uh, humanitarian law. Thank you very much.